John William Tatuas. Welcome to What Else. This is fun. Looking forward to it. Thanks for, thanks for doing this. Um, so we were just talking before we started briefly about like uh, sitting in the chair all day and working for too long and trying to, and I was saying that I need to kind of change some habits. Um, are you a person who's able to like, you strike me as someone who like develops a routine and then adheres to it. Is that a fair characterization, do you think? You know, there's definitely routine that's helpful and gives you structure, but I tend to like to go from project to project. I'm not one to look at a single project and just power through it for, you know, hours and hours at end. I like to come back to a project and then kind of readdress it. You know, for instance, like a writing project. If I'm writing something, I like to write something down. I get that first draft out. Then I like to let it sit for a bit and come back to it later. And then I realize, oh, what is this dribble that I just wrote? And then address it from there. And, and then just kind of keep doing that over a period. And, um, yeah. you know, I, I, I'm one of those people that is driven by a deadline. I like having a deadline. And oftentimes I will artificially put myself in a position where the deadline comes up but I tend to have enough time to address it, but I'll use that deadline as kind of a motivating force. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. So when you talk about going from project to project, are you, is it that you, it, I'm hearing kind of two things in there. Like one is that maybe you think the your your perspective or whatever gets better or evolves if you step away and I, that the break helps the, the end product. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. I think you look at it with a different angle. You look at it through a different lens every time you come back to something and, you know, especially a creative project, whether it's music, whether it's, uh, you know, writing or even business writing. Oftentimes you're looking at it from a different lens when you've got a little perspective and, you know, you, you improve things through that. Yeah. Okay. And when you, like, are you able to, I'm interested in this idea of like whether or not you're able to sustain um, your attention on things. So like how much of it is like, hey, you know what, I I did the first draft and I want to let that kind of, um, you know, sort of like work its, work itself out in, in my subconscious or whatever versus like, I'm I'm tired of working on this. I want to move on to something else. I need I need a fresh thing to work on for a little bit, and I'll come back to this. You know, there's just times when, regardless of what the project is, you have to power through, and you have to continue to stay in it to be be complete. But if you have the luxury to put something aside, come back, readdress it. I think that's that's often going to make a better product. Yeah. That's interesting. How do you know when it's time to like, when you're, when it's time to like step away, do you just kind of have a feeling about it? You know, it's kind of the diminishing returns when at that moment you have diminishing returns, you know, it's, you know, think about whether it's practicing an instrument. Oftentimes you'll sit down and you'll be noodling around or you'll be working on something 
and you just can't seem to get it. And you've put good effort into it. And then you set it down. And then you come back and some of those things have clicked. Some of those things have become part of the muscle memory. And, you know, I I think you can look at projects like that, um, you know, again, whether it's a creative project or or a business project in a similar way. Yeah. Um, what are the kinds of creative projects that you like to do? I, I sense that playing music is one of them. Yeah. You know, music is, um, you know, I mean, you and I have a, a history of music together and the, yeah. um, the, the expression of music is, is so powerful and it just brings back, um, you know, feelings and, you know, can transport you in such an incredible way that, uh, you know, whether you're playing music, listening to music, it's just such a powerful tool. And, you know, you, when you find people that are listening to the same kind of music as you, oftentimes they're, they're a lot like you. And, you know, the, the, when you see somebody who, um, you know, I take, take the band that, you know, I, I play in a, in a group with some folks, uh, local to me here. And we listen to the same kinds of music. We come from a same perspective and, you know, that doesn't mean that we all have this exact same playlists, but it's right. fun to have this common perspective on things and, you know, kind of all having somewhat of a shared memory through these songs Sure. And whether you're playing them or listening to them, you know, you, you kind of get, are transported because of the music and, mm-hmm. you know, and there, there's a difference between listening to music and really playing and trying to work up a song and, and listening to it. Because oftentimes when you're, when you're picking apart a song, it's, it's more exciting because it's it's like the old days when we would listen to an album, we'd listen to it over and over again, and you'd find these nuances every single time you listen to it. And when you're learning to play a cover and you listen to the recording, you try to pick it apart, you're always listening and finding new nuances, even a song that you may have been playing, you know, for for years. And then right. you listen to it again in another way and you realize there's something else in there that that I can add. There's something that I missed the first 300 times I listened to it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the, that's the fun part of music. That's the fun part of art. And, you know, whether it's visual art or sound arts, you know, this is, you know, th- these are things that you can always find another dimension to it. Mm-hmm. Tell me about, um, so you play a couple instruments and stuff like that. Talk to me about, um, practicing and learning the instruments so not necessarily learning a song which you were talking about and i hear what you're saying about that stuff but like actually getting your skills together on an instrument and how you've kind of approached that in your life you know i haven't been particularly organized and i often don't come from a place of organization when i approach learning something it'll be kind of ad hoc. I'll start with something. And oftentimes the organization doesn't come until later. So you mm-hmm. first 
attempt to hack your way through something and then you think you have it and then you <laughs> then you get a little bit bored with it because you realize you're not quite there and then you decide I'm really going to nail this and I'm going to really put the time and it's it's more the listening element of it than it is the playing element of it you know and you know just like the you know photographers the best photographers are looking at hundreds and hundreds of photos all the time. The best musicians are fans of vast genres and listen to a ton of music. You have to, you have to listen and experience it in order to be able to play it. And, and same thing with writing too. You know, you have to be a reader in order to be an effective writer. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, let's talk about that for a minute. Cause I know you're a big audiobook person, right? Or you certainly have been. Yeah. Right. Partly a function of a lot of driving to and from work. Is that? <laughs> yeah, you know, I I spent uh, you know many years going up and back between uh, home and office, and uh, you know I used that time for myself. It was it was a great escape to either let my mind go and idle, and sometimes you just need that and, and escape between worlds. But oftentimes I would listen to uh, you know long form books, sometimes short form podcasts. Uh, or a mix of things, you know, depending on what it is. And and audiobooks are are a powerful experience because not only do you get the whole complete experience of a book, but the narration can also be just as compelling. So a, a great narrator can really bring you into a book. And oftentimes an excellent book that's poorly narrated is not very satisfying. Right. But, right. You, you know, a mediocre book that has a really excellent narrator can oftentimes be engaging. And, you know, audiobooks, they do impart in your brain, I think, differently than reading a book. When I read Mm -hmm. a physical book, my retention is different and my experience of it is different than when I listen to an audiobook. And it's one of the curious things of, of an audiobook is I will oftentimes put myself in the physical place when I was hearing the book. Sure. To, to remember something. I'll say, I was, you know, I was driving down this highway and I was listening to this and it will, or I will drive back on that highway and I will recall the book. Yeah. You know, it's incredible how powerful the mind connects these things and takes one experience, you know, a visual experience over here and brings it to a, you know, a book experience over here. Yeah. That's interesting. You're making me think of, I don't listen to a lot of audiobooks um but i listened to one on someone's recommendation um uh guest of the show angina joan recommended a book to me around this time last year and i remember listening to it and when i think about it i think there's probably passages where if i read them in print it would maybe have a different effect on me or i would think about it or maybe i would stop and but it definitely had a had a significant impact in terms of like i can think about certain things that happened in the book. And I remember like which train car I was standing in or what the weather was like when I was walking home, when this thing happened in the book and, yes. and that kind of stuff. And it really does. You're right. It really, for me, at least in that case, really kind of made some specific impressions. Um, I was trying to look at the, look up what book I just purchased. I haven't started reading it yet. I, it's a physical book. So, you know, I have, yeah. I oftentimes will have multiple books going. I'll have some books on tape that I'm listening to. Okay. I'll have a physical paper book that I'm reading. So, you know, I can 
I'll oftentimes kind of move between worlds, and it's kind of similar to how I, you know, approach, uh, you know, projects. I'll, I'll go in from one project to the next. I, I'm not the kind of person that has to complete one book in order for me to pick up another book. I can have a couple okay. of books going simultaneously. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I and um, you don't like for me. Like I can sometimes have like I'll have a nonfiction thing and a fiction thing going, and that's about it. Like I can't really have like a whole bunch of things going because I. Yeah, and that, and that's what I tend to do. I'll I'll tend to have some kind of a fiction. Um, actually, it's for me. It's rarely fiction. I'll I'll do fiction probably twenty percent of the time. Right. You know, maybe maybe twenty five percent of the time. Oftentimes, it's it's nonfiction. It might be uh, business, or you know, I love biographies. I, yeah, I, I love talk history. about that. I know you've talked to me about that before, and you turned me on to a couple. Um, I think maybe uh, the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, or a couple of things like there were mm-hmm. a few biography things that you turned me on to. So, talk to me about your love of biographies for a minute. Well, you know, the thing that about biographies is. You know, every single biography is coming from one perspective. And the, when you read multiple biographies of the same individual, it's kind of fascinating because you get a different mm-hmm. perspective of somebody. Uh, you know, a, a good case in point would be somebody like Steve Jobs. You know, that first biography came out and it was not the definitive biography because it's just too soon after you know, the, the passing of, of Steve Jobs. And the, I think the character changes and the perception changes over time. And, you know, as you hear stories and you're informed from other perspectives, you start to, mm-hmm. you, get, you get the picture. It starts to form in a different way than that one biography. So, you know, history is a continuum and you're always, you know, one one biography, you know, eventually will lead into somebody else's biography because, you know, life is, you know, just kind yeah. of continues long. <clears throat> but um, that's, the, that's the exciting thing about a, a biography. So even s- some historical character can have a new compelling perspective and, and, th- and that could be totally unique from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm surprised when I read certain stuff, especially about historical figures that are further in the past, how relevant a lot of the stuff feels to me, the lessons or the experiences and stuff, how th- there's obviously things that are, are, you know, sort of fixed in time, but that there's a lot of stuff that's sort of timeless about, about it that, you know, that I find really interesting and kind of informative. Well, you know... <laughs> you know, history repeats itself so often. And, you know, the, the name of our high school band, the original thoughts, you know, with <laughs> it, which is a, you know, a play on, you know, there is really very little original thought. Right. Uh, you know, a lot of the things we do have been done before. And, you know, we, we get to take advantage of people's experience and, and build on it and do it better. Um, you know, and that for me is, kind of the exciting part of learning and reading biographies is you get to see, you know, not this, it's more, more so the, the failures and how they, people responded to failure or adversity 
than success because that yeah. informs how you react and how you you make your next decision you know because it's it's sometimes easy to say oh we we did this and we were very successful but oftentimes when you know you're just you know handed some adversity and you you know you fail because of it that's going to inform how you're going to react and respond the next time it comes around yeah um you talked a little bit before about um projects and and things and i'm interested in whether or not you see yourself as like a person who um is sort of like a completist or a perfectionist or stuff like do you have to finish everything you start do you need to get it right like what's your what's your orientation to things because you seem to me to be a person who's very interested in learning and curious and i'm wondering if you're fine in some cases dabbling or if you're like oh when i go in i go all in I'm not particularly comfortable leaving something halfway. Um, That's a great way of saying it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll I'll abandon things and and move on. But from a completion standpoint, I like something to be complete and at least correct and what my perception is or others perception. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that, that's probably one of the more interesting things in business. Oftentimes your perception of what is complete is different than what others perception is of what is complete. Whose is more? (laughs) (laughs) Well, and, and that's a really good question. And oftentimes you've got to decide or you've got to find what the answer is because you may be wrong or, you know, oftentimes I'll be wrong. And what my description of what is a complete project is mm-hmm. wrong and somebody else is right. But you've got to, you got to find what that, you know, what that truth is so that you can reconcile that. Let me ask you about that thing. Cause so there's a lot of, uh, I, I feel like there's a lot of people, maybe even most people are, are fine in the abstract with the idea of being wrong. Like, oh yeah, I'm wrong about things all the time. But in any particular moment, if you say to you, like, you're wrong now, they're like, no, I'm not wrong. Right? It's hard for people to be wrong. So I'm interested in like your approach to that or your kind of um, self-awareness about or openness to being wrong about things. You know, it's kind of, (laughs) in some ways it's statistic based. (laughs) <laughs> if 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 I have an opinion and somebody else has an opinion, well, those are two opinions. But when you start to have a you know a, a consensus, then that you know that that right or wrong decision starts to be more apparent as you get those other data points. And sometimes it's not about what is right or wrong. Sometimes you just have to make that decision and move on whether mm-hmm. it is right or wrong and, and accept it and, and manage the consequences regardless. But um, I think that, you know, you know, in the context of, uh, you know, the work that, that I do, everybody comes from different perspectives and, uh, you know, our customers have our, their perspective, you know, our folks have their perspective, our suppliers have a, a perspective and, uh, you know, we, 
we have to synthesize that. And <clears throat> you can't satisfy everybody and you can't make everything, you know, the right answer for everybody. You got to find what is the right consensus so that you can make that decision and then you can move on and continue. So talk to me a little about how you deal with situations where there's, um, not to make this sound like a job interview, but like <laughs> where you're in situations where there's, so you, for people listening, right, you, you run a business that's an electronic, audio electronics business basically, right? Yeah. And, and so, but irrespective of the particulars, um, and it could, this could be about business or it could be about anything else, I guess, in life. When I'm interested in this idea of um, your approach to decision-making, especially when you don't have complete information and you're maybe not going to get it. Like, how do you approach that? Is that frustrating to you? Are you able to just be like, well, this is, I'll use the three data points I got, even though I wish I had nine and let's, let's make a call and move on? Or how do you do that? Sometimes well, sometimes not so well. <laughs> uh, and you know when you've you've done it well, and you certainly know when you haven't done it well. Um, but I think you know your your background, your experience. You come with that initial perspective, and you say, "This is this is what my expectation is. This is how I see this." Uh, moving forward. And then, you know, a little bit like the creative process, you start to get more input as you, as you look at it from different perspectives and different angles. And then the power is getting other people involved and having a team and having a consensus and have, you know, sometimes you'll have disagreement among the team. And oftentimes that brings out the best uh, potential outcome because, mm -hmm. You know, you don't want to have outright conflict and you don't want to have, you know, an environment where people are afraid to express themselves. But you want, you want to get genuine perspective from people that's, you know, that's true and unfiltered. And you don't want them to say, well, I, you don't want them to second guess because they're co you think their colleague is going to, uh, you know, have some opinion and say in and try to appease them just for the sake of appeasing them if you truly think something's differently have mm -hmm. have dialogue you can have disagreement and that's you know that's important and i think you know you kind of look at this in the macro context you know of the environment that we have right now it's okay to have discussion it's okay for somebody to have one opinion and for somebody else to have another and rationally no, it's not you're that. wrong <laughs> you know you've you've got to have you got to have an environment that allows that and you know i think we see you know in this macro sense you know kind of uh you know not enough of that we, we need a, we need environments that that can have true uh you know disagreement and let people's perspectives truly come out and let them present that perspective, you know, in a fair, rational way. Yeah. I think that seems hard for people. Maybe it's always hard, but the right, I see a lot of like people come in hot, right? The guns are blazing. They've got their opinions ready to go and 
they more want to foist them on other people rather than just be like, Hey, I've been thinking about this thing. Like I'm kicking it around this way. Why don't you tell me what you think? I'm interested to hear some thoughts on it. Yeah. I mean, you see a lot of people come in, you know, with their heels dug in and, you know, sometimes people are coming with their heels dug in just to, just to get a reaction from somebody, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's, that's frustrating to see. But sometimes people come in with their heels dug in because they truly believe in where their perspective is. Sure. But, you know, I think if, if you're really looking at, you know, what's, what's the right conclusion, you're going to be open to changing that opinion mm-hmm. when you are presented with different perspectives that make sense. Yeah. I think it's right. It's, it's a spectrum of like openness, right? If people are willing to, to hear something else and, um, not everybody approaches it with that. Right. I think some people are approaching like they, they want to win or they want to like persuade or something as opposed to, yeah, I mean, you know, not every decision, you know, should be a focus group. And, you know, you come out of a consensus of some mm-hmm. third party of the group that may not know anything about what you're trying <laughs> right. to do. Uh, you know, and that's that's where expertise, that's where, uh, you know, specific knowledge, uh, you know, somebody schooled in the art makes sense to listen to that expertise. You know, I think yeah. oftentimes... You know, people reach a conclusion when they're not listening to somebody who's schooled in the art. You know, whether it's science, whether it's, uh, you know, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of art, you were talking, we talked earlier about um, music and other stuff. What, do you, what else do you, and and books and audio books, like what else do you look to when you want to either soothe yourself or just, um, or just enjoy or entertain yourself? Like, are you like a movies person? Are you like an art museum person? Like what, what are the things when you think of like, Hey, yeah, this is something I want to like, just kind of soak up. You know, one thing that I spend, you know, a, a fair bit of time doing that's outside of work and outside of family is uh is cycling so you know about 12 years ago 13 years ago i i ha- met a friend of mine and uh you know we struck up a, a a relationship and he got me out on the bike and since then we have spent you know many many miles together uh we've ridden across iowa we've ridden through france we've ridden across wisconsin uh we've ridden in you know, Northern California. So, uh, it's something that is both social, but also very selfish at the same time. Social Mm -hmm. in that you can do this with others, but selfish in that, you know, it does require a long stretch of time that you take away from, you know, your family. Um, right. You know, (laughs) when I, when I first started cycling and, uh, you know, growing family and, uh, you know, prior to that, I used to play golf and it was a choice between whether I wanted to play golf, cycle, have a family. You can't do all of those things. 
Right. You know, you got to pick something. So, so golf, I haven't played golf in, uh, you know, probably 20 years. <laughs> yeah. But, but cycling is something that's very much part of me and, and really has brought me just a ton of joy, uh, you know, both through the fellowship of riding with others, but just the, the aspect of being out in nature, uh, you know, I enjoy the technology of cycling and the, you know, mm-hmm. watching that whole world continue to evolve. Uh, it's, you know, it, it brings me back to when I was a kid dry, riding around on my Schwinn Typhoon in the driveway, you know, just doing circles for, you know, <laughs> hours, <laughs> you know, right. and I, I'm doing the same thing now as a, as a grown man. Yeah. How much, I'm interested, you talked about it a little bit there, like, because I, I know you're really into it and I'm always interested, like, in how much of it is like a, like an exercise thing versus kind of just like the experience of being out riding and whatever kind of meditative state you might get into or whatever it is versus the, like, I love the kinetic element of like, you know, moving or sweating or things like that. Like, do you ever think about it that way? Like what are the pieces of it that appeal to you? Or is it just the particular combination of things that come with, with cycling? Like you said, like the, a little bit of social, a little bit of, nature a little bit of whatever you know it is it is a totality of all those things you know if Mm -hmm. if i simply was seeking you know some way to you know for for fitness there are more expeditious ways to pursue that Mm -hmm. um you know this is this is a way to be outside this is a way to you know experience my community in a totally unique way you know uh you know riding down uh, you know, State Street in Madison after, you know, everything's been boarded up and riding on a bike and, you know, you experience things so differently than when you whiz by in a car. Mm-hmm. And you experience it differently than when, when you're on foot too. And all of these, you know, are, are, are different. But a cycle, you know, bicycle is just a, is, is the right speed to be able to bring in a lot of sensory elements. And, you mm-hmm. know, fortunately where I live, uh, here in Madison, just west of Madison, there is just f- wonderful terrain for cycling. So we've got rolling hills. We've got, uh, you know, largely safe roads to to ride out there. And, and it's it's really enjoyable. And we can also do urban riding. We can ride into the, the city and there's lots of paths and such. So, you know, it's a, it's a combination of, of that that, uh, you know, really, truly makes me feel like a kid when I'm on a bike. Yeah. That's awesome. Are there any, do you have any like particular favorite routes, whether it's near your home or anywhere else that you really like or, or favorite bike trips that you've made? The, um, you know, the trip we took a few years ago, and this was a group of, of local friends here, uh, when we rode out in France was, was very special. It was, you know, kind of our 50th birthday present to Mm -hmm. ourselves and, uh, you know, it's it really self-indulgent to do that without the family and just a, yeah, you know, right. and just a, you know, bunch of cycling folks. But you know, to experience the terrain uh, of France and to be on the same roads as you know c- cyclists who ride the tour, and you know, th- that was very special and you know, really rewarding to 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 go up these you know enormous long climbs. That you know, I grew I grew up in. Chicagoland, you know, the highest point right. in Chicagoland is an expressway overpass. And here we would be riding and we would be, you know, on a climb for an hour plus. And, yeah. 
you know, it's, it's a whole different environment. And, you know, you contrast that with, you know, riding through, you know, the prairies of the Midwest. It's very different. Yeah. That's really cool. So that, um, that is making me think about the, um, the travel aspect of stuff. Um, either you travel a lot, you've traveled a lot for work too, right? Yeah. And, and you, un- unfortunately it, in the last, uh, you know, year plus it's shut down quite a bit. Uh, yeah. actually shut down completely. So, yeah. you know, in 2020, uh, in January, you know, did some travel and then since then have been home and, it's the first period in my adult life that I have not, you know, been on a plane, uh, you know, every month. So it's, it's a very different experience and travel is a very big part of my life. And, and Mm -hmm. I enjoy the element of going to a community to being in, you know, in my customer's place of business to learn about how they operate, uh, you know, to build those relationships and you know, perpetuating them over Zoom is, you know, is is all well and good. But at some point, you have to, you know, you've got to have that interpersonal connection that only face to face connection can can offer. Yeah. Um, what are the other parts? Do you generally like traveling? I like, love. Do traveling. you enjoy the experience of it? Yeah. Both both personally and and business travel. I. You know, they're, and they're very different kinds of travel. Uh, you know, business travel, you know, tends to be, you know, at least for, for the kind of business that I do in, you know, major markets. So, you know, New York, uh, Atlanta, Southern California a fair bit, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Western Europe, a little bit of Asia. Uh, you know, family travel, that's different. It's going to be, you know, visiting family, you know, whether that's in the States or in, or in Europe. Uh, you know, Greece. And, you know, those are, those are just incredible, powerful memories uh, that you build with those, you know, kind of epic travels and seeing mm-hmm. the relatives and, you know, <clears throat> those long days and, right. you know, long nights with, uh, you know, with the relatives, you, you look back on that and, you know, and, and you long for that. I mean, right now it's, uh, it's tough because it's, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out what our next family travel is. And, uh, right. you know, is that going to be, you know, local? Is that going to be something that we're going to, you know, try to, you know, really do another epic trip or what does that look like? Right. Right. Is there somewhere, um, is there other places like that you have particularly in mind? You're like, Oh, I've never been here. I'd really like to go here. or I'd really like to go back to wherever. Like, I think I'd like to take the family to the UK. I think uh, I think they'd appreciate it. You know, there's there's enough difference from you know. I mean, the culture is is certainly different, uh, but it's very relatable and right. it's very accessible. The language is obviously accessible, um, and, and I think they in would places in places. Yeah, Scotland yeah. not not so much, uh, <laughs> right. but I th- I think they would appreciate seeing, you know, an English speaking country that has a lot more heritage. You know, you, you look at around in a, you know, city like Madison, Wisconsin, which is where I'm at. And, you know, the buildings are not particularly old, 
You know, most of the residential construction is probably within the last 60 years. You know, most right. of the commercial properties downtown are, you know, maybe 100 years max. Um, you know, and you go to some of these other cultures and it's, you know, that's, you know, you're just getting started. Yeah. So that, that's, yeah. that's definitely a place. I, I always appreciate and enjoy going back to Greece. It's, you know, it's, you know, relatives, it's, it's family. There's a, you know, connection there that you have that's incredibly special. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's a beautiful place. And, you know, that's, that's always a, you know, a wonderful, fulfilling trip. You know, you, you get to fulfill, you know, that historical element and, you know, the richness of the culture as well as, you know, your own personal history, you know, yeah. seeing relatives. How much do you feel when you go there, do you feel like, oh, yeah, I'm a Greek person, I'm vibing with this? Or do you feel like I'm an American person, but this is pretty cool? I think it's more the latter than the former. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, my experience growing up, you know, growing up on the north suburbs of Chicagoland, you know, I am as Midwest as you possibly can be. And, right. uh, you know, I, I fortunately have, you know, relatives who are, you know, and my wife has relatives who are, uh, you know, born in Greece and, right. you know, have much more connection to, to that and, you know, to experience that and to interact with them is, is really fun. But yeah, I am, you know, I'm a Midwestern product. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I think you, I remember you saying to me one time that, you know, in Madison, Wisconsin, you're like super ethnic. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you, uh, maybe not necessarily in Madison, but uh, if you start to go outside of Madison, you know, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, fairly homogeneous environment with, you know, with the culture. And, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to experience a diversity of culture. Sure. And, and, uh, you know, I think that those differences, you know, add to the human experience. Yeah. How long have you lived in Wisconsin now? It's now been... 18 years old. So we moved right before my daughter was born. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, she's 18 now. So it's, Crazy. you know, I, it, it's hard to look back and think that I was, you know, in, in Chicagoland. And when you're back in Chicagoland, you, you know, kind of bring yourself right back there and, you know, you're on the, sure. you know, the Eden's Expressway and fighting the traffic and it's just like you never left, but, uh, <laughs> right. You know, that was a, it was a fairly big perceptional difference to move to Madison. Now, Madison is a, is a really wonderful city. It's got a great yeah. cultural experience. It's got, uh, you know, <laughs> prior to, uh, you know, the environment we have right now, we, it has quite a rich music environment, great mm-hmm. music venues. A lot of, a lot of shows like to come through Madison, um, you know, and then we've got this topography, which is very unique from Chicago. Uh, mm-hmm. And we still have access to, to Chicago. It's, it's not right. far. You know, it's, uh, yeah. you know, two and a half hours to get to downtown from, from Madison City Center to City Center. Yeah. How long do you think it took you to, like, feel like, oh, yeah, this is my, this is my place now? 
It was very quick because yeah. for me, home is where the family is. Mm-hmm. And I can be kind of anywhere. As long as the family's around, that's where I'm at. And yeah. I guess I don't have much experience outside of that because I haven't really moved around. But, right. but when we came up here, it was, it was pretty quick that it was, you know, this is home. You know, I've got, you know, I had my growing family at the time, you know, around me. This is home. This, this is, this makes sense. Yeah. yeah and then it was, you know, cool. and then, you know, being in Wisconsin was like, I'm in vacation land every day, you know, because that's the perception, you know, in Chicagoland, you're like, oh, you go up to Wisconsin right, sure. for vacation land. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's good. Do you still kind of feel that? Do you still have that sense of like when you're there, you're like, oh, this is pretty cool. I'm kind of like already on vacation a little bit. Definitely. I definitely have times where you feel like that when you, you know, especially when you drive just a few minutes outside of the city and you're in, you know, a rural environment and rolling hills and, Mm -hmm. you know, picturesque farms, you know, it's, uh, you know, you are not, you know, in the North side, you know, you're, you're not in Chicago. It's, it's, it feels very different. Yeah. That's awesome. That seems really great. And that, to me, is one of the appealing parts of that part of the country. Is just that access to that other, that whole different vibe, and so close, right? You've got like a good mix of right. You have a a city or a small city, and you know, with a lot of the things that one gets with that. But you you don't have to drive ninety minutes to start to see a farm or something or a hill. You can drive like 10 minutes from your house or whatever. Right. I mean, I think about the experience of my kids and what kind of activities they do versus what kind of activities I did growing up. And, you know, it's, it's different and, uh, you know, they're both valid, but, you know, my, my daughter, you know, is a, you know, competitive horse rider and she wouldn't have, I don't think she would have done that had we been on the north side. It would have been right. kind of tough to find that. But here, you know, not far away, we have that available to us. Uh, you know, again, the, the cycling is different. I, uh, you know, when I was in Chicagoland, when I was in my 20s, I, I was cycling and uh, enjoying bike riding. But it's very different dry, riding on the north side uh, forest preserve trails versus riding out on the road here. You know, I mean, they're... You know, they're, they're enjoyable. They're both enjoyable, but it's a very different experience here. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool to have that exposure to other stuff. Um, so you moved up primarily because of your work, right? Because your company is based in Wisconsin. Yeah. We, uh, me and my partner started a business in 98. And we started it up here because we we're in an office space and an assembly space that was up here in Wisconsin because it already existed and we could get to market faster. And, uh, so we, you know, we started up as a Wisconsin company and remained a Wisconsin company and I came up here to, to be with it and still here. And, you know, that's 23 years later, you know, for the company and, uh, you know, 18 plus year Wisconsin resident. Yeah. It's wild. When you, before you started the company, like, I'm interested in that, 
process of you getting from wherever you were to kind of making that decision um, to start this company? Like, was this something you were like thinking about for a long time? Did you just sort of see an opportunity and um, you had the right, you know, person or people around you? Like, how did that, how did that evolve? You know, I, I was working at uh, Shure Incorporated, which uh, when I was there, it was called Shure Brothers. And, you know, it's based in Evanston. In fact, I lived in Chicago, uh, worked in Evanston. My wife worked in Chicago, lived in Evanston. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had just gotten married and, or I, I was in, I'd gotten engaged to my to my wife and it was a time where things were changing. And I had uh, a colleague that I worked with, uh, my business partner, who's still currently still my business partner. Um, And we started kind of an abstract talking about doing our own thing. And it wasn't because, you know, we were frustrated with, you know, our our work or anything. It was just, Mm -hmm. you know, we're 30 years old, 29, 30 years old. If we're going to take a chance and do something, this is about a good time to do it. So why not? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had an opportunity to do this. I had just gotten married and, you know, five months later, you know, had, uh, you know, walked into my boss at Sure and said, I'm, I'm taking a step. We're going to do our own thing. And, you know, he was, he was supportive of it. And, uh, you know, our friends were supportive of it. And, you know, looking back on it at that time, I thought it was such a disruptive big decision. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, now perspective, you know, kind of like, you know, uh, your own biography, you look back and yeah, it was disruptive, but it wasn't that disruptive. If, mm. you know, if the business didn't work out, you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident that I would be able to find a, another role somewhere else. But at the time, it just felt like this mon- monster decision and this big risk but then, you know, again, you look back on it and you say, yeah, okay, there was a little bit of risk, but, but really not, not a huge risk. You mm-hmm. know? But the, the other thing about you know, starting a business is, is truly the things you don't know are what power you forward. Mm-hmm. Because when you first start, you think you know all the answers. And, you, you, know, I, you know, I had worked for sure for about 10 years and you know, had quite a bit of experience but my work in the context of working for a you know a big successful manufacturer versus you know starting on your own with you know no parachute you're you're off on your own to make every decision you've got to uh, you you don't have a department to handle what you just needed to right. figure out um, oftentimes because you didn't know the obstacle that's why you can move forward Mm-hmm. But if you look, for, if you know that there's an obstacle in front of you, oftentimes, you know, that, that that's going to have you put the brakes on. So mm-hmm. if you don't know there's an obstacle, you're just going to keep going into the darkness and, and yeah. it's going to work out or it's not going to work out. But the, you know, the thing that's also important is you can't really look in the rear view mirror too much because mm-hmm. if you keep looking in the rear view mirror, you're going to run into something in front of you. You know, so you can't look back and say, this is what we've done. This is what we've succeeded or failed on. You just kind of have to be in the here and now and, you know, kind of move forward from that and not 
not too far forward, but things that are actionable and controllable within the, the near term, you got to have, you know, some, some direction where you want to go in that long term. But it's really, you know, what, what powered us and what allowed us to continue to, you know, to, to, to uh, you know, exist and to be successful was we looked at what was the here and now, you know, not, not too far forward. Uh, you know, as you mature as a company and you've got, uh, you, you know, strong people in different roles, then you can start looking at, you know, kind of the bigger window. But when you're a small little entity and every day matters, you just have to look at what am I doing today? Because, you know, if mm-hmm. I don't get what I'm doing done today, you know, there might not be a next week. Mm-hmm. Do you think your approach to that or your acceptance of that or whatever has has changed over time, either work-wise or just like as a, as a person, as you, when you were younger versus when you were older, that ability to be focused on here and now as opposed to worrying about the past or the future? I think I've always looked at the here and now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a, a little bit like, you know, looking at, you know, growing up and living in Chicagoland, you know, that it's kind of a different world and I don't really look too far back. And, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to still maintain those, those connections, but, um, you know, you can't dwell on that because mm-hmm. you've got to focus on the here and now. Yeah. It's interesting. I think, uh, so how about, about looking forward? You talked about sort of having a little bit of a sense of direction, but also kind of like tackling what's in front of you. How much do you plan ahead, just in whether it's with work or with life or in any sense? You know, I think that's, that's changed as, you know, as I've gotten older. I remember being in college and trying to picture myself first at age 30. Like, what, <laughs> what am I going to be? age 30, you know, what is, mm-hmm. and then picture myself at, you know, the, the turn of the century, you know, when you're in college and you're, you know, the year 2000, I wonder what I'm going to be like in the year 2000. What's, you know, what is the world going to look like? What am I going to look like? Mm-hmm. And it was always, you know, I, I really had no vision of it and I didn't have, you know, a clear goal that this is exactly what I'm going to do. You know, there's, there's some Mm -hmm. people who have been directed as, you know, young kids and they really have a sense of where they want to go and how they want to be. And, you know, in Mm -hmm. some ways I envy that I'd never had that, but, but I've been able to, you know, kind of ride the waves as things have moved along to kind of adjust that perspective over time. And, Mm -hmm. you know, now, you know, we're, where I'm presently at, you know, things that may have been important back then, you know, have shifted, you know, now it's, it's, it's far more, you know, looking at family, looking, looking forward to, you know, what happens with your family and your children, but also looking back and what's happening to, you know, you you know, your parents and, and, uh, you know, your, your in-laws and stuff, the, you know, so you're, you're looking both forward and backwards. So, you know, you, 
your perspective is always changing as you get older. And, uh, you know, but what I'm doing in the next 10 years and what, what I'm going to be when I grow up, I have no idea. <laughs> it reminds me of, I think, uh, talking once to our Uncle Dennis about something and it was, was asking him some question about work stuff and, you know, you know, business plans and three-year plans and five-year plans. And he was like, five years? He's like, that's nonsense. Who knows? He's like, right? He's yeah. like, kind of like, how about a one-year or two-year plan? That's that's about it. It's like, after that, you're just making stuff up. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I was running one of Sure's business units, we we would put together five-year plans. And you know, you had pretty good confidence what was going to happen in the next 18 months. But beyond that, you know, for instance, you know, 2020, who could have predicted sure. what right. 2020 would have done and how it has changed business, how it's changed communication, uh, mm-hmm. it's, you know, how it's changed, you know, supply side. I mean, it has changed, you know, just about every element of, you know, of a business and certainly has impacted us. So you have to be, you know, I, I understand the validity of having a long-term plan. And, you know, the Toyo, you know Toyota has a, uh, Toyota Corporation has a hundred-year business plan. Well, <laughs> you know, maybe that's not necessarily a business plan. That's a philosophy of how you want to be. And I do think that's valid. So how you want to be and how, you know, what your character is, you you can define that. And that kind of transcends those you know, ups and downs of you know, mm-hmm. all this, you know, all the small intermediate decisions. You can decide how you want to be as an individual or how your, your organization is going to be. So you can, you can define that. But all the nuances, you know, it's best to be, you know, as flexible as you can. You know, and for us, you know, we've grown up as a, you know, we were a pure startup. We started on, uh, you know, 737 Devon Avenue above a paint shop in Park Ridge. And, uh, you know, there are three of us, uh, first four of us, and then three of us. And, you know, now we're, you know, we're a few more folks and, but we still <clears throat> think like we are in that paint shop where, you know, we're kind of paranoid about stuff and we want to make sure that, you know, we don't miss anything. You know, we don't take anything for granted. And mm-hmm. I think the the minute you do, you start to, you know, get distracted by something, then the minute the landscape changes, the competitive landscape can change without you being aware of it. Um, You know, and then you're caught flat-footed and then you're, you know, playing catch-up. Yeah. Um, Give an example of something. I'm interested in the way you're thinking about stuff and, and, like an example of something that you believed, it could be any kind of belief, but like a belief you had when you were younger that you have now changed your position on. Like when you think, like when you look at yourself, the way you think about things, do you see a lot of changes or do you just kind of see it as I'm just me and this is how I look at things? Like, I don't know if I see that many changes, frankly. Uh huh. I think... I 
Yeah, that's that's a great question. <laughs> um, I think a lot of the way I was, you know, in my youth, you know, I I'll be more considered, and I'll I'll take action with more data points mm-hmm. than I used to. You know, mm-hmm. there, you know, definitely that youthful impulsiveness that. Um, you know, sometimes it was an it was an advantage, and sometimes a disadvantage. Sure. Uh, so I'm definitely more considered when I move forward. Um, hmm. You know, I also I do think I have more empathy than I used to be used to have when I was younger. I think I was a little bit more caught up in my own here and now in my youth. And now as I've gotten older, I start to recognize that, you know, we're all connected and, you know, that, that empathy piece is, is really critical. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, that, that has certainly grown as I've gotten older and also, you know, being a, um, you know, being a parent really changes that too, because, you know, you're, you're, you want, you know, your, your kids to be, themselves to express themselves be unique uh you know and be you know whatever they feel they need to be to feel that they're uh you know successful and comfortable in their own world in their own skin and mm-hmm. you know supporting that so you know when you're when you're a kid yourself you know you're you're less conscious of that or at least yeah. i was i was less conscious of that yeah. Yeah. Speaking of kids, so I don't know if your kids ask you for advice, <laughs> but if they did, like, is there a thing you're like, oh, if I could give these guys, if they would just absorb this one thing, this would be a really helpful thing. It doesn't have to be of a huge magnitude, but like, are there. This, this is, there- is a great question. Cause this, this comes up at the dinner table. Cause oftentimes when they ask a question, I'll say, do you really want to know the answer? and what often will come out if they say yes is the whiteboard (laughs) so nice so they may ask some question about business or finance or whatever it might be and i'll say do you really want to know the answer and and sometimes they don't (laughs) you know they they don't want to right they, they don't want to but sometimes they'll humor me and say yes we do and it oftentimes will go deep and you know i I first experienced this with my oldest son when he was young. We were driving up to uh, the office from home, and you know it's about an hour drive. And I had business radio on, and he said, "What's what's a four hundred one k?" You know, because they were talking about that and you know defined benefits plan. I said, "Do you really want to know what that is?" And this is an eight year old, mm-hmm. and he said, "Yes." And I'm thinking, "Really? Okay, let's go." And, you know, for 40 minutes, (laughs) he heard about, you know, (laughs) what a 401k plan is and how it works and, you know, what retirement, uh, you know, planning looks like. And the interesting thing is it informed him and it informed how Mm -hmm. he, you know, as he's starting to grow up and, you know, become an adult, you know, he is an adult now, uh, you know, it, it informed him. So. So those lessons are important. And, you know, it's, it's fun when they ask for it. 
It's mm-hmm. much less fun when they don't ask for it and you give it to yeah. them. Probably much less effective too. <laughs> yeah. huh? I'm guessing. Yeah. That's great. Um, going back to music, I have another question for you. So, uh, Vinay and I will often talk about, he kind of coined the term secret personal anthem, <laughs> like songs that, right. That's like, that's like when you hear that song, you're like, yeah, it really, you know, there's many, like you talked about before, right. Music can affect you in many ways and be a powerful thing that, um, that speaks to people. But do you have like an example of a song where you're like, that is a special song to me, either in terms of how it makes you feel or motivates you or, or brings back a memory or whatever it is. There are definitely songs that do that. But yeah. interestingly with music, I spend less time listening to the lyrics than listening to melody. So oftentimes, blah, blah, blah. Is that blah, always blah. the case or is that more so now? Or is that kind of always the case? It's kind of been always the case. So oftentimes it's like, blah, blah, blah. Like I've, we're playing the song and I finally heard the lyrics and really this is what it's talking about? So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I definitely am more, you know, melody oriented. Mm-hmm. And, but yes, there, there's definitely some songs that, you know, that bring up, some emotions, uh, you know, put you back into places, yeah. uh, you know, experiences. And, uh, you know, some of them bring me right back to, you know, high school experiences with you. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah. So no, no doubt, you know, yeah. it's, is there it's one you can think of off the top of your head? Like if someone was like, give me a song that's meaningful to you. You know, some of the, some of the who tunes are, incredibly mean, meaningful to me because what it makes me look back on is, you know, that, that those formative years in high school and how fortunate I was to have, you know, great, great friends, great relationships. Um, you know, you, you as part, you know, a big part of that. And, you know, when I, when I hear any tune off of who's next, Mm-hmm. You know, it just immediately puts me into the Marcos basement. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I think this same thing, right? There's just particular ones that really just, they really transport you. Yeah. Right? But those in particular, you know, just because, um, you know, that was an influence of our high school band. So, you know, we, you know, we, I think we all collectively, you know, that was, that was an important force in our musical education. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, all right. I want to ask you one nerdy thing about your work stuff. Cause if you've told me a little about this before and I feel like our listener or listeners might enjoy this. So, um, I'll paraphrase you, right? Your, your company make these various broadcast audio devices among other things. Right. And one of your customers is the White House Communications Department. Talk to me about the thing with like the podiums and how they have the rigs <laughs> shrink wrapped or whatever that is. Sure. Yeah. You know, what, what our company makes is uh, audio recorders and audio mixers that primarily get used for TV and film production, you know, mm-hmm. episodic TV, feature film. Yeah. Uh, but we also are, you know, show up in sports, competition, reality. Uh, and broadcast. And like you said, 
you know, Waka is one of those customers and they've, they've been using our gear since 2004 and they use one of our audio mixers. And like you said, they use it in conjunction with the, uh, the presidential, vice presidential or any executive office podium that's deployed anywhere around the world. So oftentimes in a election cycle, there's multiple stops and, you know, these political folks are going all around and there's an advanced team that sets up all these environments no matter where they are, whether they're domestic, international. And so there's a, you know, a group that is responsible for all that. So all the PA and all the, all the broadcast feeds come from uh, White House Communications and their mandate comes from the, um, the Library, Library of Congress to make sure that they mm-hmm. you know, store all this data. Uh, you know, in all these recordings. So our, our products get integrated along with the, uh, you know, the presidential podium and vice presidential podium and all that stuff. So, um, you know, they've, they've been using our gear for, for many years. And, you know, I have a, a story. I was out at, uh, you know, their, their facility in DC a couple of years ago. And this, this is probably the, the group that has the biggest AV budget in the world. And I, and I was there to give them training. They had just, uh, you know, converted their inventory to one of our new products. And so I was, I was giving them, you know, some, some product training and I had my computer and my computer was cleared in advance and with the serial number and, you know, gave it to them and they inspected it and all that. And, and all I was doing was driving a couple slides, you know, in, in, a, in their conference room and gave them the computer and they were having some challenges getting the signal from my computer onto the screen. You probably experienced this if you've ever done, you know, meetings and such. Right. And I see, you know, first they, they have contractors who are, um, you know, civilian contractors. Then they also have, uh, you know, commissioned or they have military, uh, you know, active duty as well. So I see one person back there trying to get things to work. And then I see a couple other people trying to get things to work. And there's like this group back there. And then I come up and I, I kind of see what the issue was. And, you know, you kind of have to make that decision. Like, do I want to be that guy and, <laughs> and, you know, and correct that? Or do I just want to let it go? And uh, <laughs> so I, I let that one go. <laughs> and just say, you know what? I could do this without the slides. We're, we're good. <laughs> That's pretty great. And so they, you were saying that they, like if if there's three stops on a in a day or whatever in a couple day period, there's multiple like podiums, and they're it's not like they're moving one from place to place. They have like several deployed out. And- oh sure, yeah they they deploy them because they have to advance the the location and they have to do a security sweep of where the location is. So they can't just you know go from place to place. So. They'll, they'll advance it the day before. They'll clear the space or whatever it may be, you know, some some time before, and uh, you know, and and so they have this pretty significant inventory of gear, and whether it's uh, you know AV gear, uh, you know, play on music, uh, you know, audio distribution, microphones from the podium. You probably have noticed that. Uh, from forty six to forty, from forty five to forty six, uh, went from 
45 was using the single microphone on the Goose. Now 46 is back to using two microphones. You know, this is mm-hmm. all, you know, inside baseball stuff. We look at yeah, and right. see, you know, how's the president being covered from a broadcast perspective. And, uh, you know, it has, it has impact on, you know, how to, you know, what's their game before feedback for the PA and, you know, all these kind of, you know, arcane stuff that we spent yeah. time on. Love that. Um, if you were going to, if someone was going to get into someone who's not really a bicyclist, but maybe just putzes around town or something who wanted to get into kind of a little bit more serious riding, what bike would you recommend they get? Like, what would you tell someone to get as a starting rig? I think it's going to depend on where you are geographically. Are you in yeah. urban? Are you rural? Are you suburban? Are yeah. there hills? Is it flat? You know, that's going to inform that decision. You know, I, I'm a road cyclist. Uh, I also, you know, am the N plus one bicycle person where I have, uh, you know, there's always one more bicycle that you need. Uh, I have, yeah. <laughs> I have pared down the inventory to some extent, but, uh, yeah. you know, I, I like to have different tools for different applications. Uh, sure. my, my, my favorite bicycle, I think you've, you've actually seen it is my little folding bicycle. My, oh yeah. My Brompton. This is, uh, I, I bought this when I was on a business trip overseas and, uh, it's a, a little folding bicycle with 16 inch wheels that's made in England. And I, it's my favorite bike and it's probably the one bicycle I won't sell. Everything else is up for potential, you know, transition, but the Brompton that's going to remain in the inventory permanent. That stays. That's so cool. Yeah. I remember you brought, I remember you being in town and talking about doing a fairly significant ride on it, right? It's not just for like kind of putzing around like you can, I've I've done I, I've done road rides on my little three speed internal hub Brompton where I've passed road riders and it's quite a quite a you know you you feel really good when you pass a road rider and you're on sure. this little clown bicycle it's quite fun that's awesome uh, have you ever done the recumbent thing is that a thing I haven't done the recumbent thing no that's mm-hmm. you know those are unique and. Those things can really cruise on the flat. They go, they can mm-hmm. go really fat, uh, fast. But where I'm at, we do a lot of hills, and so sure. they're really not conducive to hills. Uh, so I'm, you know, just a typical, normal, standard road bike kind of person. Yeah. All right. And I remember riding with you one time, and you chastised me on the downhill for stopping pedaling and coasting. <laughs> what is the science behind why I should keep pedaling on the downhill? <laughs> Well, you just want to be in the right gear, so you're always in control. I think. I think that's I probably see. where where I was coming from for that. Yeah. Okay. And also, I was probably just busting your chops to stay, yeah. <laughs> stay along with me. <laughs> that sounds about right. That sounds about right. All right, man. Thanks for doing the. Uh, thanks for doing the what else with me. Oh, this has been a lot of fun. 